It is nine minutes past seven o'clock. Happy to have you with us. I believe you're having a good morning so far. My name is Susie Jones. That's Charlie Weeze. We are getting it done for you on this Sunday morning. We are talking all things health from seven to eight. And then we'll talk about money from eight to nine. Big show coming up this hour, though. We are responding to some news this past week. Americans are getting cancer colon cancer, breast cancer, cervical cancer, and other types at higher rates than normal. And they are being diagnosed at younger ages. This is all according to the American Cancer Society out with some news this week. And so we've invited to the program Dr. Nisha Jacobs with Minnesota Oncology. And we invite you to be part of the show as well at 651-461-9226. Colorectal cancer, one of the fourth leading causes of cancer deaths for people younger than 50, has leaped to the up on that list, becoming the leading cause for men and ranked second for women, according to this study. So, doctor, thank you for coming on. Welcome to the program and really appreciate your coming on early with us on this Sunday morning. Of course. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So you saw the news out this week from the American Cancer Society and also the news uh, from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention on the colorectal cancers information. What are we seeing here in Minnesota? What are you personally seeing at Minnesota Oncology? You know, it is very interesting that this news kind of confirms what we've been seeing for the last, I would say, at least 10 years or so. I would say probably when I got into practice, which is about maybe about 14 years or so ago, um, the average age for colon cancer I was seeing was people in their 50s, 60s, definitely an older population. Now I would say my average age, I've seen people in their 30s, even late 20s. And um, that looks like this report just confirmed that we've been seeing that clinical trend for at least the last 10 years. What do we know about it? Is there a reason? You know, there's not really any confirmation, but there, I do have some theories and there's some postulation that, you know, the microbiome maybe has something to do with it. Um, what, the is microbiome that, what, is, yeah, what is a microbiome? So it's kind of this new buzzword that's out in the news and everybody's talking about it now, but it's the microbial makeup from basically the mouth all the way down to the anus. Um, it is bacteria, viruses, other these small microorganisms and really has a lot to do with our immunity. So a lot of the things that we eat, a lot of the diet things, um, environmental things can certainly influence the microbiome. So I think there's been a big change in what that looks like from 10 to 20 years ago to now. It looks very different now. And when you talked about the environment, what we're eating, kind of walk through some of those factors that could be at play. So for a long time, I think obesity has been touted as, you know, if you're, if you're overweight, that increases your risk of breast cancer, colon cancer, several midline cancers. And just as a general shift as a society, there's been a big push to decreasing obesity. So all of these diets have come out that we really didn't used to do a whole lot 10 years ago. So keto, like the carnivore diet, which are really focusing on eating a lot more red meat. And there have been several studies looking at if you have more than 8, or, uh, eight to 16 ounces of red meat per week, that increases your risk of both colon and gastric cancer by 16% per year. So it's not insignificant. So, and then our other foods, you know, everything is grow it faster so that we can consume it sooner. Um, even things like salmon, everything is being fed hormones and we, all of that affects that uh, microbiome, that bacterial milieu. 
651-461-9226 if you have a question for Dr. Nisha Jacobs with Minnesota Oncology. We're talking about colorectal cancer and an increase that they are seeing there in the number of people treating being treated, and the younger they are, and microbiomes, and your uh, calls are certainly welcome here, and your text. We have a texter already this morning asking, what is your opinion on PSA testing in men over 60 years old? You know, I I do actually believe, and this, this is a personal belief, a lot of things kind of age out per se. So, you know, even for mammograms, if women are over the age of 70, they're not recommending them. Same thing with colonoscopies and PSAs. I believe that screening should be done as long as patients are healthy enough to tolerate the treatment. So, for example, you know, if somebody is too ill to tolerate a surgery or something that's curative, I wouldn't bother screening. But if if somebody, a patient's healthy enough to tolerate the consequences of that screening, if that's positive, I certainly think that should be done. All right. Very good. We're going to take a short break here. It is 714, but we'll continue on with questions from our listeners as well as from me. Again, you are listening to the Health Hour on WCCO Radio. Dr. Nisha Jacobs with Minnesota Oncology is on the line with us. We're at 651-461-9226. Please jump in and ask a question. You can call or you can actually just text it, and that's an easy way to get your thoughts and your questions to Dr. Jacobs. We're back right after this on News Talk 830-WCCO. And we are back. It is 17 minutes now past 7 o'clock on a Sunday morning. We're talking about colon cancer. Dr. Nisha Jacobs with Minnesota Oncology is on our news line, and we do have a number of text questions, doctor. One texter writes, I've heard recently that plastic water bottles contaminate our body with tiny plastic residue. Your thoughts, can they cause cancer? I would say yes. I mean, in my household, I have, you know, two two little girls as well. I We've stopped using plastic actually several years ago. Um, those reports indicate that these plastic molecules are actually incorporated into the cellular structure, which is not going to allow them to work properly. Long-term effects, you know, just like everything, we don't necessarily know yet, but anything that's um, going to disrupt that cellular structure and keep it from working normally does have the potential for carcinogenesis for cancer. Okay. That's good news to note for all of us that drink water bottles. This texter writes, uh, good morning. Do you know if tuna fish is a contributor to causing cancer due to the mercury in the fish in, or if there's a significant amount of it present? What do we know about tuna, processed tuna? You know, it's generally, I think, with all of all of the foods that are highly processed, um, not necessarily due to the mercury content that has more of a um, kind of neurological component that hinders the development in um, in the neurological sense. But we don't necessarily know how much is kind of the tipping point for cancer, um, if it even causes cancer. I would be more wary of the way that it is raised. Um, you know, with all the additional hormones, the antibiotics in particular, but I'm not sure if the mercury content necessarily plays a large role in the development of cancer. This is from Thomas in Minneapolis. I grew up in the city of Fridley with lots of water contaminated mm-hmm. with uh, PCBs, got to a point where um, we had to have a town meeting and a lot of people responded to that. Is that, um, obviously we're seeing clusters of cancer based on areas that have had PCB in their water systems? You, you know of that, obviously, yes? Mm-hmm. I mean, is that something you're seeing? 
You know, so um, the Fridley, there's certainly been this cohort of folks that have grown up in Fridley. I know Aaron Brockovich has come there as well to investigate what the increased rate of cancer is. Um, to my knowledge, there really hasn't been a causative, you know, if you live within a certain radius of one particular area or what environmental contributions there have been, it might be multifactorial, but no one thing has certainly been linked causally to those cancer clusters found in Fridley. And then back to uh, colorectal cancer, just because I have the question of how is it treated? Is it survivable? How does it compare to other cancers in terms, in terms of survivability? You know, if caught early, just like everything else, it is uh, very treatable, very survivable. Uh, The earlier the stage, the more likely you are to be cured of it. Um, What we're noticing, so specifically for this trend in younger people, it's just a lack of awareness. What 20 or 30-year-old is going to say, oh, gosh, I've had blood in my stool? Most people will say it's a hemorrhoid. And so, you know, they'll go in, even if they seek medical help, and this is what I've been seeing in my practice, it takes a long time for them to seek medical help just because that's not really on young people's radar. They're more worried about raising kids and doing kind of the day-to-day family things. When they do finally go in, the other barrier is, you know, oftentimes it's the same thing with the primary physicians. We, this is something that's relatively new. We're not seeing younger people with cancer until now. So they're like, oh, treat it conservatively it's probably a hemorrhoid. So by the time they go in, if the symptoms get bad enough, that it's later than we would originally like, say for somebody of you know average risk or average age. So the later it's diagnosed, the worse they end up being. So I am seeing that, I, I think that actually explains the mortality in younger people because they're getting diagnosed later because they're seeking, they're seeking care later. Do you think there'll be a time when they increase or change the recommended time that a person gets their first colonoscopy? I would think so. And I think everybody knows, you know, over the last couple of years, the age has changed from 50 to 45 now for average age, um, just reflecting some of the, the health trends that we're seeing. I think the change, the age will probably change. And it's also really important to be aware of the other testing that's available to detect colon cancer besides just colonoscopy. I find especially in young people, you know, that evokes a lot of fear, but there is non-invasive testing that's available as well to help detect colon cancer earlier. And what is that? So there's um, essentially three different modalities. So there is uh, something called FIT testing or fecal occult blood testing uh, that tests for blood in the stool. Not as good for the the cancers that are higher up, so the right-sided compared to the left, but that's, an, that's a modality you could use. It's just sending in a stool sample. Um, there is a stool DNA test that's certainly more sensitive and specific. Also has the ability to detect some larger polyps as well where you have... DNA components that go into the stool that this test is able to detect. Um, There is a third test called a CT colography, which is basically an imaging test to detect um, any masses or polyps in the colon as well. Um, And then, of course, the gold standard, which is the colonoscopy. Now, the the caveat here is any of the non-invasive testing that's done um, that you know, like the fecal occult blood testing or the stool testing that should be followed up by a colonoscopy to confirm and to um, diagnose the colon cancer. So likely if that test is positive, 
that person will need a colonoscopy. But these are non-invasive things you could do to certainly screen for it. Again, you are listening to the Health Hour on WCCO Radio. Dr. Nisha Jacobs is with Minnesota Oncology, and we're talking about colon cancer and what you need to do to protect yourself and make sure that you're screening properly. So many people have such negative uh, feelings around getting a, a colonoscopy. My best friend's getting one this week, and she's put it off and put it off. Um, it is not pleasant, but not the end of the world. How would You know what I mean? For people that have never had one, how would you approach it? I would agree with that. You know, everybody is so terrified of, oh, my gosh, it's a colonoscopy. And honestly, the, the prep is probably the worst part. You know, nobody wants to be on the toilet for the entire day before. But the the colonoscopy itself is a breeze. And so generally speaking, you know, even if you, when you have a colonoscopy, most people are done for a good 10 years, sometimes five, it it all just depends on the findings. So it's just kind of biting the bullet and getting it done. It's usually not as bad as people think. A texter writes, I'm 67, diagnosed with mild ulcerative colitis and IBS. Is it too late to change my diet to help my condition? The UC is under control and in remission. I have also had surgery for diverticulitis in the past. I'm doing well now, but worried about the future. What would you say to that person? I would not say it's too late to change your diet. I never think it's too late. Um, So diet, like I said, has so much to do with what we put into our body has so much to do with whether we develop cancer or not. It's never too late. It'll help with the inflammation from the ulcerative colitis. Typically, if you've had inflammation in the colon for more than 10 years, you should be getting a regular colonoscopy anyway, because that increases your risk for colon cancer pretty greatly. But it's never too late to change the diet because these, the, um, bacterial organisms in the colon, the microbiome, it's so sensitive to diet and it's definitely capable of being changed. That's fabulous. And then I wanted to ask, how is it treated? So you come and you have a patient and maybe, is it just like any other cancer, stage one, two, three, and four? And and how do you treat it? So it uh, it is stages one, two, three, and four. And we tend to lump colorectal together, although colon cancer and rectal cancers are treated actually very differently. Um, colon cancers themselves are treated with a combination of surgery and typically some chemotherapy afterwards if it's stage three. In some cases of stage two, um, stage four would mean, you know, cat's sort of out of the bag. It's spread to other organs besides just the colon. And then we're talking about something totally different where chemotherapy or immunotherapy is kind of the newest thing that's the new modalities of treatment. From a rectal cancer perspective, and that's, you know, kind of lower to the rectal sphincter, it's treated very differently in the sense that it's a combination of chemotherapy and radiation, uh, plus or minus surgery now. Um, And sometimes we're incorporating immunotherapy based on what the cancer looks like under the microscope or the specific characteristics of that cancer. But typically speaking, that one has chemo radiation and surgery, whereas colon will be surgery plus or minus chemo. Okay. And then again, for the screening, getting a colonoscopy, is it once every 10 years if you're having a clean scan? It depends. So, you know, if your average risk at 45, um, if you have a completely clean colonoscopy um, with the exception of one type of polyp called a hyperplastic polyp, which has no cancer potential, um, now the recommendation is about 10 years. If you have a family history, it may be sooner than that, you know, maybe five years or three years. Um, and if you have a known genetic disease, so 
something like Lynch syndrome, um, there's this MUTYH polyposis, those things that the screening interval is shorter because people are able to develop these invasive cancers in a shorter, shorter interval. I see. Any final thoughts as we near the end of this half hour? We're going to have you on for a half hour this morning, and then we're going to talk to a cardiologist in the second half of the hour. Um, any thoughts that you want to share as a doctor and advice or message you would like to get out to people when it comes to this news and colon cancer and what we can do to hopefully prevent it? So one thing I would say, you know, I can't impress um, the importance of diet enough. You definitely are what you eat. So please pay attention to what you're putting in your mouth. So cut back on processed foods, um, smoked foods, junk foods, every everything like that changes your body structure and it does decrease your immunity and increases your risk for cancer. I really would urge everybody to cut down on their red meat consumption. That's a major thing that you can do. Um, and then, you know, working on weight loss is excellent, but beware of these fad diets again. So everything that says, you can eat all the meat you want and it's fine, but if you eat a piece of fruit, that'll kill you. I would really be wary of that. And just, you know, make sure you read all of the sources. Being smaller, less obese isn't always better if you're getting to it in the wrong way. It's not just the end product. It's how you get there. Very good. And Minnesota Oncology, obviously, if someone has a question, uh, they can call or come in and, and see you and get a consult and that kind of thing if they have concerns. Absolutely. And... Um, I, I'm going to go back just a titch, but um, what would be a sign to come in if you think that you're in tr- that you have some trouble with potential for colon cancer? So blood in the stool. So definitely don't ignore that. Any sort of abdominal pain that's sustained for a long time. So you know everybody has gas pains or indigestion, but if it's there and it's getting worse over time, that's something to seek medical care for. Um, if you're noticing any change in the caliber of your stool, if they're thicker or thinner than they've, than they've been, pay attention to that, and that's something also to seek medical care for. And any unintentional weight loss, you know, if you always had trouble losing weight and then all of a sudden it's just melting off, that's, that's concerning. So those are things to seek medical attention for. Well, doctor, thank you so much for your time. You were very helpful. We would love to have you on again sometime. Thank you so much for having me on. Dr. Nisha Jacobs, Minnesota Oncology, with us on News Talk 830 WCCO. It is 730. We're going to shift gears for the second half of the program and talk about heart health after this on News Talk 830 WCCO. And we are back. It is 734. My name is Susie Jones. Charlie Wee's at the helm. And we are taking your calls and texts this Next half hour, but we're going to shift gears and talk about heart health and your heart and what you need to know about it. And it is 651-461-9226. We are so happy to have on our news line uh, cardiologist, Dr. Mosi Bennett with the Alina Healthcare System. Dr. Bennett, thanks for coming on with us this morning. We really appreciate your time. All right, good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Well, a couple things in the news that caught our attention, starting with uh, the Golden State Warriors uh, assistant coach had a heart attack, died during a team meeting, 46 years old. It always kind of stops people when a young person like that just drops dead. And I think when you hear that as a cardiologist, what do you think and what lessons can we learn from it? Yeah, that's um, it's really unfortunate, to, um, but it, it, these things do happen. Um you know, when I hear about a young person who has a heart attack, <clears throat> I think about whether or not there's a family history 
of heart trouble. A lot of times these things can go undetected and, um, you know, coronary artery disease blockage to the blood supply to the heart can, can appear suddenly. Um, and is usually linked to a strong family history. Yeah. So there's no really, if someone in your family has had this happen before and you're related to that person, are you just a little more conscious and aware? Can you do anything sort of preventatively if you're in a family that has a history of, of heart attacks? Yeah, there, there are a few things that you can do in terms of minimizing the risk of uh, you know, getting a heart attack, especially if you have a family history. The first would be just to be aware of the fact that there, you know, there might be early heart disease in your family. Um, and then there are things that we can control, like uh, you know, knowing what our blood pressure is, our cholesterol, um, and certainly not ignoring any symptoms, chest pain, shortness of breath, anything that might change uh, and the way you feel that you you know even if you're not sure if it's related to your heart, it would be important not to ignore and bring it to the attention of a doctor. And we think about symptoms of having heart failure or heart problems, trouble. What are those? Once again, I always think my pain in your left arm. But are there other things that we're not thinking about? Yes, they are. So you know, the pain in the in the arm, pain in the chest, you know, pain in the chest area are some of the more common ones, but symptoms to, to be uh, pay attention to or worry about would be um, worsening shortness of breath. If there's an activity that you used to do that all of a sudden became a little bit more uh, of, a, of a chore or a challenge in terms of your breathing, that's, that would be a concern. Um, uh, palpitations, the sensation that your heart is racing or pounding or, or skipping beats, that, that would be another thing to bring to attention to. Um, sometimes in in uh, problems with your heart can can present in in unusual ways, um, nausea, vomiting, uh, lightheadedness, or dizziness. You know, so these are all things that we have to pay attention to because it's not typically it's not always the, the typical symptoms of uh, chest pain or chest pressure. Doctor, we just had a colonoscopy or a colon cancer doctor on talking about screening. Is there a screening test to take? For potential heart attacks, can you do a test and know, oh, yes, you're likely to have it, or, oh, no, you're not? Um, there's, there are some tests and things that you can do to get a sense of how likely you are to have a heart disease or coronary artery disease. Um, there's uh, you can there's certain scans in the, in the right uh, person that can pick up calcium in the blood supply to your heart that can give you an indication that there might be um, a, a risk of, of heart disease. But I think the real, the, the main things that we can do are focus on those, those controllable risk factors, uh, low, lowering blood pressure, reducing cholesterol, making sure that you get uh, exercise and maintaining a healthy weight. Those are some things that are within your control that can reduce the chance of getting heart disease. Dr. Mosi Bennett is our guest. He is a cardiologist within the Alina Healthcare System, and we are here for you as well this next half hour at 651-461-9226. Again, 651-461-9226. Dr. Bennett, there was a uh, New York Times article about study, I mean, obviously there are many studies around heart conditions, and the study, the story rather, talked about coronary artery bypass grafting in men and how it's mainly been studied in men and not so much in women. 
what do you find in the world of, of research and study in terms of the information we're getting equally for men and for women? Is there a lacking there? Um, you know, there's. you mentioned coronary artery bypass grafting. That's uh, essentially bypass surgery where the uh, a surgeon would uh, go around a blockage, uh, a blocked artery, and restore the blood supply to the heart. I think that when you think about the, the you know, differences between men and women when it comes to heart trouble, is that it, it's often that um, heart disease in women can can show up differently, can present differently. So a lot of times it goes unrecognized. If you're looking for the classic symptoms of chest pain, um, that may not be the case in in, in women. Um, so it's very it's, it's unfortunately it's it's not uncommon to miss heart disease in women because mm-hmm. they may not present with the, with the same type of symptoms. Hmm, that's interesting. So as far as studying groups of people with heart disease, do you think that men are studied more than women because they present differently? I, I think, I think there's, a, there's some truth to that, yes. And, you know, we'll see sometimes that you know, heart disease presents earlier in men and more frequently in men. And, you know, I'm not quite sure that that is entirely true. It could be that it's just not as recognized in in, in women. And, and a lot of the um, research studies in, involve men, and, and you know, there really needs to be a focus on, on, a, on a, a range of participants in research so we, so we get a, a really accurate uh, representation of 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 the you know the prevalence and severity of heart disease. Yeah, six five one four six one nine two two six. We're talking to Dr. Mosi Bennett in the Alina Healthcare System, a cardiologist. We invite your phone calls and your texts. Uh, we have a text question this morning, Doctor. What is a heart murmur? Is it hereditary, and is there treatment for it? Thank you, and thank you for texting in, listener. Uh, that's a great question and a, a very uh, you know, common uh, uh, question. So a heart murmur is is a is a sound that um, that we can pick up just listening to uh, uh, someone's uh, chest or heart, and it really is just a, another way of saying that you can hear um, turbulent or blood flow that is uh, moving through the heart uh, across one of the valves. So it it's a very uh, general. Uh, you know, common finding, and it may represent uh, a problem or it may not. If there's a problem with a, a valve in your heart, um, most likely you'll, you, you will have a murmur. But you can have a murmur that doesn't re- does not represent a problem. Some of these valve issues could be hereditary. You can have a murmur that's there when you're, uh, you know, when you're really young, or you can have a murmur that develops as, as we get older. Is so, it, does it mean automatically if you have a murmur that you're likely to have a heart attack? No, I think that um, uh, having a murmur, if if a murmur is picked up, it should probably be looked into and, and to know what what's causing that sound. Um, but it does not mean that you automatically have a risk for for a heart attack. Six five one four six one nine two two six. This person writes, I've recently been diagnosed with AFib, but I don't know what I should be doing for my personal care. Can you respond to that one? Sure. So AFib or atrial fibrillation is a, one of the most common different uh, rhythms of the heart. Where So the upper part of the heart will beat really fast and irregularly. If, if you are diagnosed with AFib, 
of course, the, the first thing to do is to follow up with your cardiologist and talk to your cardiologist about medicines to slow your heart rate down, convert that AFib back into a normal rhythm, and also to minimize the risk of stroke by having a conversation with your doctor about the use of blood thinners. So th- those would be the main things to do if, if you're if you're diagnosed with AFib, certainly it's not something that would go away on its own without without the help of your cardiologist or your doctor. Okay, very good. What can be done with arrhythmia, writes another texture this morning. So uh, these are great questions. So an arrhythmia is just um, any sort of uh, difference or um, rhythm of the heart. And there's a broad range of arrhythmias. Um, the again, the the first step would be bringing it to the attention of your of your of your doctor, understanding what type of arrhythmia it is, and think about ways to uh, restore an, a normal rhythm to your heart. Um, it, arrhythmias are they're cardiologists who focus on on heart rhythm issues. They're called electrophysiologists, and they work with your other other doctors to uh, to restore a normal heart rhythm. All right, very good. We are going to take our final break of the hour. It is 651-461-9226, and we're talking to Dr. Mosi Bennett, cardiologist in the Alina Healthcare System, about your heart. And maybe you have a murmur, maybe you have another condition you'd like to ask the doctor. We have time for that after this quick break on News Talk 830-WCCO. And we are back for the last segment of this hour on health. We are talking about heart health this second half of the hour. At first, we talked about colon cancer. And a texter writes, please talk about similarities and differences in diet for heart health and digestive or colon cancer health. That's a great question. Does it kind of go across the board or are there specific things to do for specific areas of your body? Um, yeah, so that's um, a great question and probably worthy of a full hour of discussion. Um, but, you know, when we think about a heart-healthy diet, we think about one that's low in, in um, saturated fats. We think about making sure we're not eating uh, too much uh, red meat and uh, getting our fiber, our vegetables, um, and monitoring our caloric intake so we're not uh, gaining gaining weight and maintaining a healthy weight. You know, I think a lot of these uh, same principles apply to to all to many different uh, health conditions, including uh, um, uh, colon and uh, other GI um, uh, conditions. So I think you know there's certain principles that are that are definitely uh, applicable. For various organs, yes. Okay, that's good. That was a good question. A texter writes, "Good morning. Is high cholesterol, in your opinion, the biggest factor for heart disease?" Thank you for your response. Thanks, texter, for writing in. <clears throat> yeah, so um, high cholesterol is is certainly one of the biggest factors, um, but there are others that are that are you know that we should pay attention to. For example, uh, cigarette smoking is a huge risk. For, for heart disease, and it's probably one of the the most important things to to do. It, it would be to stop smoking if you are a smoker. Um, you know, we, you mentioned high cholesterol. There's high blood pressure, also a concern. Um, diabetes is a risk factor for heart disease. So you know, we can think about a kind of a multi uh, uh, multifaceted approach to managing our risk factors for heart disease. 
Again, if you're just tuning in, we're talking to Dr. Mosi Bennett with the Atlanta Healthcare System. He is a cardiologist, and we're taking your calls and your texts at 651-461-9226, 651-461-9226. A texter writes today, um, the question is, I'm sorry, I lost my place. Charlie, we were talking about pericarditis. Pericarditis. Carditis, yeah. Carditis. And the person wanted to know what factors, uh, what are the causes of that? So pericarditis is uh, inflammation uh, around the, the outside, the lining of the heart, or the space around the heart. You know, there could be, there are many things that can cause it. Um, any um, uh, an infection, a virus, um, would probably be the most the, the first ones that the thing that come to mind when I think about pericarditis. Um, you know, any sometimes after uh, open heart surgery, there could be um, irritation to the area around the heart. Uh, sometimes that we could have uh, the fluid build up around the heart that can cause uh, pericarditis. Um, so you know, we think about it as. Uh, uh, one of the uh, inflammation around the heart would be the, the best way to, to describe what, what is pericarditis. Uh, texture writes, here is a scenario for the cardiologist. I had a triple bypass 18 years ago, including a Widowmaker. Recent scans show they are now blocked, but the Widowmaker is okay. Doctor said nothing to do. Um, I wonder what your, I mean, obviously in general, you can't speak specifically about this case, but in in general, uh, what would a patient like this? How would that? How would you respond to that? Um, that's a, a, um, so when you have a bypass surgery, when they this a surgeon will you know, go around blockages and restore the blood supply to the heart. Um, over the years and over time, these bypasses can develop their own blockages, and um, so it, it it would be important over time. To um, to pay attention to those the symptoms those signs that we we discussed earlier mm-hmm. uh, shortness of breath chest chest discomfort chest pain now it is possible that uh, when a, that a a new blockage can occur and there may be nothing to do but that would be you know t- having to look very closely at a specific uh, case um, but I would say if there's a concern about a new blockage concern about a bypass, a change in the blood supply to the heart, that would be a, a important to have that conversation with your with your cardiologist. We'll try to get one more in. What is mitral valve leakage? Um, so the, the mitral valve Sorry. is the, no, it's, a, it's okay. There's a valve that allows blood into the main pumping chamber of the heart, the left ventricle. So these valves allow blood to go through. And sometimes they get leaky. You have regurgitation. So when the heart pumps, blood goes out through the, to the body. But sometimes some of that blood can go back in, in the wrong direction, um, leaking through the mitral valve. Now, a valve leak of the, can be mild or moderate or severe. And sometimes with a severe leak, you can have symptoms of shortness of breath and decreased energy. Any sort of leakage of the valve um, should be monitored by your cardiologist, and they can okay. take pictures of your heart to, to look at it. Well, we appreciate your time more than you know. We have a lot more questions from people, so they should reach out to their primary physician if they did not get their question answered today. But, Doctor, we'd love to have you on again next time for a full hour, so we'll keep you in our, keep you in our bullpen, as we like to call it. Have a wonderful day.
Uh, thanks for having me. Yes, Thank you. Yes, good to talk to you again, Dr. Mosi Bennett, a cardiologist with the Atlanta Healthcare System on News Talk 830 WCCO.